Starting to record. All right. Yay. Do, 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 do. The dark side. It's <laughs> <laughs> like I said. Silence. This podcast is a member of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts and content creators, visit bio.link slash red5. Hey, Scuttlebutt Nation, greetings from the sunny beaches of Scarif. This is Ro, not Martian for you High Republic fans. Welcome to a Quick Cuts episode of the Scarif Scuttlebutt podcast. If you remember, Quick Cuts is a special series of ours that we take three topics, three friends, and discuss. But I gotta say hello to the butt to my scuttle. This time it's Shanti, mistress of the dark side. Shanti, how are you? Why am I the butt? You because come on, <laughs> I'm, I'm 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 not the butt. Is it because I'm a Latina? Could be. Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> Racist. Ex- accept your destiny. You Did are the big butt. ass. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's uh, let's introduce our guest for tonight's segment. Um, this will be, I guess, this could be the first segment of our Quick Cuts uh, show, and uh, we have uh, a wonderful guest for your listening entertainment. Shanti, would you like to introduce him? Relax. He's not that wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down. Uh, yeah, you guys all recognize the wonderful Sith Care Bear, a.k.a. Cinnamon Roll, a.k.a. Sticky Projection Room Guy, and also my oh co-host my on Scarab After Dark. Hi, Josh. Hi. Um, well, after the, after that glorious introduction, I, I don't, I'm beside myself. I'm just really happy to be here with with the Scuttle Daddy and the butt. So, oh, yeah. you called him Scuttle Daddy. He finally said it. That's hilarious. And it's recorded and everything. I know. Absolutely. Truth. So you uh, you talked about uh, sticky floors. Uh, that kind of uh, brings me back to a memory I have. There is a local movie theater here in Chicago called the Davis. And it is uh, it, back in high school. It was definitely known for its sticky floors, and um, they did a little renovation, but uh, I have a feeling that those floors remain sticky uh, to this day. Um, Josh, what is the secret to keeping a theater floor sticky? What do you got? Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you asked that question, Ro. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah uh, you know, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mix of soda, popcorn butter and bodily fluids and and you have to maintain a a regular balance is three parts equal um so yeah it's uh it's interesting uh it's very important that you maintain that if if your attendance is low then sometimes the floors start to dry out and that's no good so sometimes we have to go in as the staff and and take care of those (laughs) issues ourselves um in order to maintain that proper level of stickiness because we know we don't want you guys to, to, I don't know, leave. So, yeah. Wow. That was a hell of an improv. Yeah. And you know, I, uh, it's wonderful that you guys have the formula, you know, down pat. Um, Science is a wonderful thing, especially when you learn it that way. Really? Chemistry. Chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Equal parts. So uh, what are we talking about this uh, quick cuts segment? I don't know, but that was disgusting. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You're Uh, welcome. Well, uh, during the holiday season uh, in December, uh, my mom and I had actually just uh, watched the 75th anniversary of It's a Wonderful Life, and it got re-released in the theater. And I think the very next day, uh, IMDB, which I absolutely love, and I cannot believe they even posted this, but I get it. It was a play on words. They had It's a Wonderful Life, a scene playing um, on the top half of the screen in black and white, and then the colorized version of the same scene below it. And the caption on their Instagram post read, uh, Life is better in color. 
And oh. I said to myself, I don't think so. And I commented wow. and I looked to the comments and everybody, they were just, man, they were just getting lambasted. Like everybody was like, no, no, no. How can you? Colorization sucks. And I thought that this would make for really good quick cuts because I definitely have strong feelings about it. Absolutely. And I've got a couple of uh, screenshots from posts. Um, I posted this question regarding our recording tonight and the topic on Twitter. We got a couple of uh, people that were interacting and commenting. We can comment on that later in a bit. But um, Josh, um, you work in a movie theater and you see a lot of movies. What is your take on the colorization of classic films? Are you for or against it? Um. <clears throat> well, I... <laughs> it's an interesting topic actually i mean in many ways it is it's a marketing gimmick it's it's a way to try to get people to watch the same movie again it's a way to maybe try to get an audience that is just in general turned off by black and white to maybe show some interest in older film um but i mean the reality of it is is most of those movies were made during a time when either color wasn't an option or it was too expensive of an option um, it doesn't mean that the people with the vision that created these films didn't want it to be in color. So I don't really think that it's necessarily a bad thing to colorize these films. Does it always look good? Not necessarily. But we have to remember that at the time, it's not like today where black and white was an artistic choice. It was oftentimes a necessity for production. So, uh, you know, I if they want to colorize it, let them do it. Get out. Get out, get out. You know, um, yeah, you know, a, a while ago we did a f uh, an episode with uh, one of our patrons, uh, Melanie, on film noir. And uh, one of the things that came up was uh, something that you just mentioned, that a lot of people feel that black and white, is, especially black and white movies, are old-fashioned. They don't really want to get into watching black and whites. They feel that it's, it's a boring, you know, it'll be a boring movie. Um and I, I find that interesting. I uh, I think a lot of the classic black and white films are, um, and Shanti, back me up if, if you think I'm correct. But you know, the depending on the story, I mean, I mentioned in the episode that the ability to do a a movie in black and white and do it well takes probably in in my opinion a little bit more talent to pull off because. Black and white, you're playing with uh, tones, you're playing with uh, shadows mm -hmm. and lighting, uh, all that. lighting and all that, all that movie stuff, all that fun stuff. And um, it uh, it takes uh, it takes some talent to, to do that. It does. And even though this is a, a more recent movie, in my personal opinion, it was done well, was the movie Blonde with Anna de Armas about uh, oh, okay. Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. And I thought it was used beautifully, especially because the black and white versus the color that was being used kind of helped you out with the timeline. You know, like always, you could tell that the black and white was being used for more flashbacks as to where the color scenes were being used for stuff that were, you know, was in the now and happening, you know, in present day. So in that case, that's fine. And I'm okay with it being used as an artistic choice now. And honestly, I mean, that's what happened with It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, that movie's from 1946. Color was already a thing, but the director chose to do it in black and white. But Yeah, I'll, I'll watch anything with Ana de Armas. Yeah, we yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. Like, I mean, if, it, if it is colorized and it detracts from the artistic integrity of the film, then I don't agree with it. But if it was colorized because that just wasn't an option for them when they made that film for whatever reason, then ooh, I'm okay with them doing that if they would like to. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't want it to lose the, the artistic integrity. Cause like you said, there, there is oftentimes filming in black and white can be a big part of the storytelling. And um, if it's going to take that away, then no, I don't want to lose that aspect of it. But at the same time, I, I'm not going to fault them for wanting to add color when they couldn't before. Yeah, one of the um, one of the recent projects that we uh, were tasked to 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 watch for the podcast was the Halloween special. 
mm-hmm. uh, the Disney Plus um, Halloween special, and um, where uh, what was it called? Werewolf Wolf by Night. Wolf by Night. Werewolf by Night. Yeah. Yeah, and that was uh, that was done very well. Obviously, mm-hmm. they they did a little switching at the end where um, they brought the color back, um, mm-hmm. and it was very deliberate. Um, but I, I want to read uh, a comment from Melanie. Yay! Um, who posted? Oh, calm down. <laughs> I figured that she would have something to say about yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. I've been waiting. So she says, "Colorizing equals defacing the original work." She says that she had a chance to speak with Dorothy Lamore at a screening of one of her films. Colorization came up, and I told her I was against it. Full stop. She said, "Honey, I agree with you, and yep. Jimmy Stewart does too." I was just going to say he was appalled that It's a Wonderful Life had been colorized. Yeah. Um, I mean, colorization, uh, the equivalent of defacing the original work. And, uh, you know, obviously there are directors that we know that go back and do uh, some changes to their own work. Um, You know, obviously being Star Wars fans, we know that George Lucas did did just that. Um, What? You know how I feel about that, so. Yeah. But, you know, here's the thing about that. I think, you know, it's uh, it's not a studio doing it. it. It was the original artist that was doing it, and he changed some things. Okay, it, it might not have been everyone's favorite, but I always say that I commend a director if you wanted to go back and change some things because maybe back in 1976, uh, before the release of the movie, he did not have the resource to be able to do what he wanted to in the first place. And he got all big and famous, and now he's able to do it. Well, uh, kudos to you, and Godspeed. Uh, proud of you, George. Thank you very much. But I think in the uh, in in the um, you know when a studio does it, like I think back in the '90s, uh, Ted Turner was all colorization crazy, and he oh, went yeah. ahead and because he's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, uh, you know, Melanie uh, posted a picture of Dorothy Lamore in black and white, and it's a lovely picture. Uh, one of our followers, 1,000th Ghost, said, how could color make her any more beautiful? Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I mean, uh, I totally agree. Again, just the richness uh, and the tone of black and white, obviously, I think it serves a purpose. And, yes, it is a product of its time. Mm-hmm. Josh, you said that, you know, color wasn't around uh, for most of these movies uh, early on in the history of cinema. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's an interesting and nowadays, obviously, when a filmmaker sits down to create something, um, you know, these are conscious uh, decisions that they have to make. Do I do this in black and white? Do I, uh, you know, shoot it the traditional way? Uh, there's a lot more questions to be answered uh, when you're a filmmaker these days. Right. I, I'm so, I mean, I definitely, (laughs) like I said before, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Shanti. Yeah. I'm, I'm ready to do my rant. I, okay. (laughs) It's going to be a Josh style rant. Let's see if I, if I take a stop. Remember to breathe. I know. Okay. Here's my thing. This is all part of history. History is history, whether it's film history, TV history, American history, European, it doesn't matter. It's all history. And to me, you're messing with history. And it's like, uh, it's like Melanie's, it was it Melanie that she said? It's like going, that would be like me going to a painting in the Louvre and then completely changing it. Like, I just would never do that. And um, it just looks fake. I can't stand it. Now, that's not to say that I've never been curious about, you know, oh, I wonder what, especially when it comes to the clothes. You know, I watched a lot of I Love Lucy. And a lot of the things that she wore, you know, you could tell the dresses she wore were absolutely beautiful. But unless you have archived pictures from the set, honestly, that's the way it was supposed to be. That's the way it was meant to be seen. And that's how I want to see it. Because like Josh said, it's a sign of the times, which is why I do disagree with George Lucas having gone back and making those differences in the original trilogy. I like seeing what filmmaking was like in 77, 1980, 1983. Okay, so you didn't have this and that, so what are you going to do? Now go back and suddenly inject cell phones into movies from the 1960s because they didn't exist back then and now they do? Like, that's how I have to look at it. And That's ridiculous. Not only that, but... 
Well, it's not my, quite the same thing dad, putting a cell phone I know, in the movie. But my, my dad has actually made a very good point. Um, my parents have been watching a lot of old classic films since the pandemic had started. And my dad said that for him, he actually finds himself being able to focus more on the story and the words that are coming out of the actor's mouths because he's not distracted by the color of the dress, the color of a suit, the greenery in the background. He's able to just focus and not worry about all that. Not only that, to me, black and white is just very romantic. There's a soft glow to it. And I feel like you're ruining the integrity of the movie when you go back and colorize. I feel like you're bastardizing. I don't like it. I really don't. Like that post from IMDb got me so fired up. Yeah. There's, um, you know, we, uh, when I posted that question, besides Melanie, there was a little bit of uh, some really cool dialogue uh, back and forth. We have uh, a post from 1000th Ghost. And um, he offered up a um, a video clip. The Dick Van Dyke show, as you know, was in black and white. Mm-hmm. And somebody found a color photo of the set and mm-hmm. uh, colorized it based on that color photo that they they uh, input into a computer and they added all the uh, the colors of the sofa, the curtains, the rug, the ottoman that uh, Van Dyke uh, flips over, and mm-hmm. they um, you know redid the uh, the opening in color. Um, and it's, it's interesting to, to see, uh, he posted it up on, um, on, on Twitter. Um, but you know, I, I remember, you know, growing up and watching the Dick Van Dyke show in black and white, obviously the honeymooners in black and white, mm-hmm. the three stooges. And I think, um, I think for the most part, you know, I, I wanted to say I'm on the fence. Um, obviously I, I'm, I'm okay with George Lucas doing what he did because he is, it's his stuff. Um, but, um, I, I really do think that colorization is, uh, overall the wrong thing to do to a, uh, to a black and white, uh, movie, yeah. especially, um, especially a classic movie, um, like you said. So I, I probably would have gotten up in arms at that post on IMDb as well. Um, but, like I uh, saw, yeah. I saw that Casablanca got the colorization treatment and I was like, really like some movies just like with reboots and sequels to me some movies just they shouldn't be touched and i've seen the colorized uh version of i love lucy it's a special christmas episode that they play every year on cbs and because i know what it looks like in black and white i find the color to be even more distracting because i can just tell now that's again that's not to say that I don't appreciate like the process because it is a painstaking process. So I guess in that, you know, I can admire that, but I just don't think it should be done. I mean, I think that, that if the people that made it want to do it, then let them, but if it's a studio thing or a a network thing, then yeah, that's just a, that's a gimmick and, and it's, it's detracting from, from the art and and i never want to see that so and chances are the colorization of a lot of black and white films is not the decision of the creator because chances are they're dead at this point like with sure. frank Capra maybe and- not but they may have spoken you know at length at some point about how they wish they'd been able to color you know have it in color um, in order to see something more in its grandeur or something to that effect and then if they decided to do it then you know, maybe I could I could see there being logic and reason behind it, but otherwise, yeah, I, I I do agree that it does detract from from the film itself if you do that. It it is a distractor. Yeah, I think um, I, I I'm guessing that our final word is is uh, it's too gimmicky. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost sacrilegious. I think we would have to agree with uh, with Melanie. Um, on her uh, take that uh, it's like defacing uh, artwork. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. yeah. Any final words on the colorization of classic films, black and white? What do you guys think? Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. You'll go blind doing that. <laughs> and and get off my grass. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> guys, thank you so much. Quick cuts. 
Where can people find you? Who? Which one? <laughs> you can find me <laughs> at Sith Care Bear on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and also as the co-host of the Scarif After Dark YouTube channel, along with The Butt over there. And also uh, distributing and uh, putting a fresh coat of bodily fluids on the floor of the theaters, right? Yeah, that's always my job. I, I take care of the bodily fluids. <laughs> <laughs> There's too many you... underage workers there. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry. Edit. What? Edit. <laughs> Edit. <laughs> I don't know what that means. We'll just leave it at that. Move along. <laughs> It's up to your imagination. You're going to get us canceled, Josh. (laughs) That is Quick Cuts segment one. We'll be right back with more Quick Cuts and more topics and more friends right after this message. right friends time to say thank you and acknowledge all the wonderful souls that help keep the lights on over here at the scarif scuttlebutt podcast team scarif gives you all a heartfelt thanks we're super lucky to have you big thanks to our executor tier patrons backyard tardis nick schaefer a huge supporter of the red five network go support his channel and catch up on his adventures in locksmithing scott and kim from the used and abused podcast another red five pod look for them on all the socials can't forget our other patrons rogue one radio thank you dj Steve and Nicole and check out comics and cosmetics Danny's got some lovely takes on comics and uh, cosmetics go subscribe to her show our Miami pal the Frank what's up Frank and Joey Rosales longtime supporter of the scuttlebutt thank you kind sir massive shout out to my co-host and mistress of the dark Chantel of Scarif After Dark and the ever so wonderful Belinda thank you so much and I'm glad you're on this list Big thanks to our other friends, Alex and Jay, and our resident classic Hollywood expert, one of our favorite collaborators, Melanie Marquita. Big hugs to you, my friend. Huge respect to all our patrons. And if you want to help us keep the lights on over here and enjoy the show, head on over to patreon.com slash scuttlebutt. Remember, we can't have the scuttle without the butt. It's always sunny on Scarif with patrons like you. That's right. Let's catch up on our voicemails tonight. We have two messages from Nick from Backyard Tardis and our pal Charles from Conversations Podcast. Two wonderful peeps. Make sure to help Pat and Charles celebrate their 100th episode over there and follow super patron of the Red 5 Network, Nick Schaefer, on his YouTube channel, Adventures in Locksmithing. You'd be surprised at the stuff he experiences. So a while back, we talked about swearing in Star Wars. Nick has some thoughts on that. As a family man, I can guess what he has to say. Then our last show before the new year was a team up with Andrew and Marisha on the weapons of mass destruction. Episode number 137. Go check that out if you missed it. This voicemail from Charles will see what he has to say. And if we mentioned his most notable weapon in sci-fi. Just a reminder, if you guys want to leave us a voicemail, make sure to save our number in your Rolodex. Dial 773-234-8659. Well, you don't dial anymore, do you? Just make sure you hit the appropriately sequenced numbers to leave a message on the Scarif Scuttlebutt hotline. Let's check out these messages. And that's the Scuttlebutt. have an incoming transmission from the Scarif Scuttlebutt Hotline, Commander, and we can't withstand a voicemail of this magnitude! Hey, this is Nicholas with the Backyard TARDIS, and uh, yes, I'm leaving you a voicemail. I don't know why that seems antiquated to some, but uh, you were recently talking about, like, should the F word or swearing in general be in Star Wars? And I have uh, an emphatic no. Um... Not just because I personally don't cuss. I don't mind that other people cuss. What it is to me is that it shows if they need that to make Star Wars feel mature, 
then that's very childish because that's basically what uh, a middle schooler does is they start saying the F words to feel like an adult. And if Star Wars needs to do that to feel like an adult and they can't do that through just giving us mature storytelling, then uh, truly the franchise is dead. So that's just my opinion. Star Wars should be for everyone, and Star Wars doesn't need the F word to be edgy or cool. It's already cool. It has lightsabers. Uh, so that's just the scuttlebutt. Hey, Rose, Chantel, and Brad, this is Charles. Uh, I just listened to your Weapons of Mass Destruction episode and a uh, fantastic show with Andrew Marisha, of course, and all the submissions, uh, you know, from DV and from uh, Nick. I'd like to suggest the addition of the Vogons from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, somewhat of a, a dim-witted race who are just hell-bent on destruction, and uh, they, they're good for a laugh as well. And that's my, uh, that's my thought for Weapons of Mass Destruction. That's the scuttlebutt! Okay, Scuttlebutt friends, last week on our episode of Weapons of Mass Destruction, we told you our friend Nick, his handle is M underscore Nick 89, is launching his very own podcast. And we have a preview right here on the Scare of Scuttlebutt podcast. Check it out. Hey, Nick from Nickflix here. 2022 is a great year for movies from original horror like X, Nope, Pearl, The Black Phone, Barbarian, to the incredible multiverse film, Everything Everywhere All at Once. My personal favorite movie this year was Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. The movie I was maybe most surprised by, Top Gun Maverick. That movie not only was amazing, it dominated the summer box office in an unprecedented fashion. Uh, And then to top off my list, The Batman. So cool to see a new version of my favorite superhero, The Dark kind of more gritty, uh, uh, David Fincher-esque style detective story. 2022 definitely felt like we're starting to get back to normal at the box office, and I can't wait to see what 2023 brings us. And as always, stay tuned to see what's in the queue. Awesome stuff. We can't wait to hear more. We do have more. We'll have more Nick previews next week. Look for an announcement soon. Nickflix, what's in your queue? Thank you to Charles from Conversations Podcast and Nicholas Schaefer from Backyard Tardis. Thank you guys for those messages. Don't forget to look for them on the socials, because it's always sunny on Scarif. And now back to the program. Again, me popsicles, and welcome to season two of Science Fiction Remnant. Go ahead and grab your multipass, a drink, and sit back with us and geek out about sci-fi. Let's pick each other's brain. We want you to be part of our intimate conversation about science fiction topics. And hang around to the end of the episodes for the real-world science that was inspired by your favorite science fiction. Let's do this. Let's talk about science fiction topics in books, movies, TV shows, and games. At Science Fiction Remnant, you are invited to listen in. Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Audible, GoodPods, or whatever you listen to podcasts. You can catch the video pods on our YouTube a month later. And don't forget your multipass, you me popsicles. Science Fiction Remnant is brought to you by the hashtag ThisIsSciFi. No capital cuties were harmed in the making of this commercial. Ba-ba-ba-ba!
All right. Thank you very much, friends. You have tuned in to a, another episode, another section of our Quick Cuts episode. And in between these sections, you hear some messages from some of our other friends, uh, some other podcasts that are not part of the Red 5 Network. And I would love for you guys to check them out, especially Science Fiction Remnant, who you just heard a message from. And uh, I'll be on their show real soon talking about what else the 1977 release of a little movie called Star Wars. So check that out. Check your local listings and uh, I'll be on there soon. I think I'm going to be recording in a couple of days with those guys. So fantastic stuff. But getting back to quick cuts, uh, I am back with Shanti. What's up, girl? Did you say section or section? What's wrong with you? Keep it clean. What's wrong? What's wrong with you? I don't know. (laughs) A lot of things. (laughs) I'm, I'm just going to say awesome. I, that's I, that's exactly what I heard, too. So you're back. Okay. You see? <laughs> oh, there you go. In your uh, face. I'll, I'll have to go back and uh, Come at know, me, bro. Do, a little, do a little editing so there. But uh, excellent. So that voice from the yonder is uh, our good pal, Andre. Andre, what is happening, man? Oh, goodness. Life. Life is happening. But, Ro, uh, I, let me just tell you this. I'm... I am extremely happy to be on your show. Um, I am surprised that you asked me because <laughs> I have fallen off kind of the the <laughs> the podcast the podcast world right now, and uh, and yeah, it's it's been a uh, it's it's been interesting kind of stepping away from podcasting. But uh, the fact that you are still inviting me on onto your show it means a lot to me, man, and so I'm happy to be here. Oh, uh, it is our honor. And, uh, if, uh, if you remember, we did a show way back when we were barely 37 episodes, uh, down on the list here, uh, a show with, uh, your show was called backseat directors. And, uh, I I couldn't wait to get you on that topic. And Shanti, um, if you haven't heard it, um, I think you should, it's called let's all go to the lobby. And we talked about I think I the did movie. Listen to that one. Yeah, good, good. It's uh, you know, we love uh, we love our movie experiences, and that was definitely one of those episodes where um, we talked about that aspect of of just film going and movie experiences and going to the movie theater. Um, now that uh, it seems like movies are back, uh, Shanti, you just went to go see uh, a couple movies though, didn't you? I did. I went on Friday and I went to the movies on Sunday. I saw Megan and Babylon loved both. Excellent. Cool. Cool beans. But Andre, you are always welcomed here at the Scare Scuttlebutt podcast. So no worries, my friend. Glad to have you back. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, man. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Excellent. And so um, back a couple of days ago, you had uh, posed a question. Um, somebody actually, uh, I don't know whose follower it was, uh, Clark Quill 97 uh, says, I know this is a hot take, but I really want to hear the John Williams Superman theme in, in a future movie. For me, that is the Superman theme. It fits with every version of Superman, not just the Donner movies. And you responded to that. And I actually uh, kind of ran with it. I put a, a, a kind of a question on our Twitter page regarding the John Williams music uh, versus the uh, Hans Zimmer music. And wow, uh, talk about uh, fighting among the fans. Um, that was an interesting, an interesting, um, yeah, <laughs> an interesting result. But here, your, um, your response to that post was genuine question. Why do people feel this way about the John Williams Superman theme, but never say anything about the Danny Elfman Batman theme from 1989. I would say that Batman's that Elfman's Batman theme is nearly as recognizable and iconic. And I wanted to talk to you guys about that because I've been talking to Shanti about this. And obviously because of the post, we've got um, our takes and, uh, but I wanted to, we wanted to see if we can distill this a little bit more. Um, I want to get to Shanti because Shanti is a big Batman yes. fan. <laughs> and as you can tell, she's got opinions. What do you think? First of all, I am one that has always said that I love both music and movies equally. They just go hand in hand. So when a certain theme just clicks for you that's it it's in your head for the rest of your life so for me 
I agree. I find that Batman theme to be extremely recognizable. In fact, as much as I love the Christian Nolan Batmans, I cannot hum the Hans Zimmer theme. I can barely remember it, to tell you the truth. But the Danny Elfman one sticks in my brain so much, and I don't know if it's just because it's the first movie, you know, Batman movie theme that we got, so it just stuck kind of like with Superman. I mean, as much as I hate Superman, I love that John Williams score. I think it's wonderful. I know it. I can hum it. And I don't, there's something epic about the Batman of the Danny Elfman one that there's, you still feel that darkness, but it still has that superhero sound. And you just know that that's Batman. I don't know. Some things just stick with us. It's an earworm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Andre, I know, you know, we, we are fans of, uh, the man of steel Superman movie. And I think, uh, we, we come to each other's, um, rescue from time to time when we, uh, when we see posts about, uh, you know, putting that movie down, but there is, um, I don't know the you know, the John Williams move, uh, music obviously for Superman was the early one. You've got, uh, Christopher Reeve, uh, you know, portraying that uh, very iconic role. But what is it about that particular piece of music that you think Clark Quill 97 was was talking about? And I know we talked about nostalgia. We usually, you know, um, you know, relate nostalgia to all the themes that we love and enjoy. But what is your take, Andre? Okay, so let me let me preface this with a little bit of background, right? Because, Ro, you and I have known each other now for goodness two three years somewhere in there yeah some somewhere in there yeah somewhere in there and uh (laughs) what's funny what's funny is that i feel like when it comes to movies there are two things that really unite you and me one is our our (laughs) our absolute hatred for the last jedi (laughs) two two is is our admiration and love for man of steel um Obviously, Man of Steel is a pretty divisive movie for a lot of superhero and specifically Superman fans. Um, but for me, Man of Steel has always been a fantastic movie. I've loved that movie since day one. And um, and uh, uh, I guess a little bit more background is that um, I I grew I was born in the eighties. I, I I grew up in between the eighties and the nineties. Um, yeah. But I mean, I'm old enough that I went to see Batman nineteen eighty nine in theaters with my dad. And so these are these are parts of pop culture that I grew up with and that made an impression on me as a kid. So Christopher Reeve Superman and that theme, that's what I grew up with. Like I, you know, like I, I'm I'm the kid that has like the Superman PJs with the Velcro cape to the back, you know, and right. all the superhero <laughs> underwear. Like that 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 was my childhood, you know. So to say that nostalgia plays a part in you know, uh, my preferences and tastes and movies is an understatement. And so, yes, like the Christopher Reeve Superman movies and that theme, they, they do resonate with me and they bring back a lot of memories. Um, but when it comes to, to movie scores, uh, for me, I, I think Hans Zimmer's Man of Steel score is the greatest score that Hans Zimmer has ever composed for any movie. And and I'm not saying that lightly. This I've given this a lot of thought. I mean, I, I, I Hans Zimmer. I think behind John Williams is probably the most, um, I would say, accomplished and uh, perhaps uh, successful composer in 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 Hollywood. And and yes, his his music maybe isn't as recognizable as John Williams. John Williams has such a knack for creating themes that, um, that instantly evoke like memories and, and experiences. Like anybody can recognize the Harry Potter theme. Anybody can recognize their Jurassic Park theme. Anybody can recognize Star Wars, Jaws, like all these, all these movies are, are, I, I, I would say that they, they have become the iconic movies that they are. Uh, largely in part due to uh, uh, to John Williams. However, Hans Zimmer, though, I think he's right there. If like John Williams is 1A, I'd say Hans Zimmer is 1B. When you think about the scores that he's done, what I'm getting at, though, is uh, Man of Steel, I really do believe, is his greatest accomplishment. 
a lot of Hans Zimmer uh, scores are are done um, kind of co-written and co-composed by uh, by other composers. You know, so even uh, even like the Batman v Superman um, uh, movie score or Gladiator, um, those are all those are all kind of co-composed with other artists as well. Um, obviously, Hans Zimmer is kind of the more recognizable name attached to those scores, but when it comes to solo composed movie scores, uh, Man of Steel, I believe, is his greatest accomplishment. That that score is beautiful. It's inspiring. It's it is um, it's an experience just to listen to. And so, for me, as much as I love John Williams, as much as I love the Superman theme from the Christopher Reeve movies. I would say that Man of Steel is the better overall score. And uh, Shanti, I know you're not a big fan of Superman as a character, um, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) what uh, you know, one of the things that um, that I discovered with the post that we that we uh, that we asked folks when uh, when we asked about Zimmer and Williams, um, it does seem to also uh, be a generational thing. I got some. Folks that went back to the 60s and 50s and and pulled up some, you know, YouTube clips of the black and white Batman from TV. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I don't remember the music um, and no, Shanti, I wasn't alive back then. Yes, but... you were. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it is a generational thing. And I think, you know, perhaps I want to say maybe Gen Xers are more John Williams um, and then later, later in life, you know, you've got, obviously you've got, uh, you know, movies, uh, after the, uh, the, you know, John Williams theme. Um, but what do you guys think about the, the music being generational? I think it goes for everything, every, every franchise, um, now, especially since we have star Wars, uh, that spans decades, you've got certain people that really latch on to a certain set of trilogies. Um, but I think generational, besides being a nostalgia thing, um, it does uh, kind of play on a, a generational theme for uh, for this music. My thing is, as a millennial, born in 86, yeah, all I was raised on was John Williams and Danny Elfman. Those were the two <laughs> big ones. And I like Hans Zimmer, too. I mean, I have a lot of Hans Zimmer on my phone under my soundtracks. So I agree with Andre. He He's definitely up there for me. My thing is, in this current day and age, with like Gen Z or whatever you want to call them. Zoomers. Yeah, what, <laughs> what composer do they have right now of their generation? I mean, John Williams has spanned so many years. Yep. I don't even know their composer is who they can even tie themselves to it actually makes me kind of sad i feel like they don't even have movies like that for themselves anymore yeah i that's that's a really good question um if if i were to give an answer to that question i would say maybe michael giacchino yeah, and yeah. as right. and as, accomp- as accomplished as a composer, Michael Giacchino is. I mean, he's an Oscar-winning mm-hmm. composer. I believe he won for his score for Up uh, from Pixar. Um, he and he, he's very accomplished and he's very talented. But I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even begin to say that Michael Giacchino approaches the same atmosphere as John Williams or Hans Zimmer. As for as talented as he is. Um, yeah, no, sure. And, you know, there are a lot of fans of his score for the Batman. Um, Mm -hmm. um, but you know, his scores for the Spider-Man movies, I feel like are are pretty forgettable. I don't think there's anything really that memorable about those scores. 
Um, he, he, I think his his most successful movies have been Pixar. Those those scores he wrote for like Incredibles and Up. I mean, those are just oh, they're they're amazing. They're absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, but no, that's a good. That's a really good question, Shanti. I mean, that, he's probably the only one for kind of a younger composer that I could say mm-hmm. is like maybe this generation's composer. But even then, even then, I think most even young kids would still recognize John Williams and Hans Zimmer more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of questions, uh, good questions. You had posed one in our group chat, Andre. Um, if a Batman fan loves the Adam West theme, is it reasonable for that fan to want the Adam West theme applied to every Batman or movie show from now on? And that's also an interesting question because it kind of, it also asks you, you know, when are fans going to allow composers to create something new with subsequent, you know, movies and subsequent projects? And I think that's a great question. And, uh, you know, do we allow ourselves to uh, to grow uh, musically, spiritually, if you will, because a lot of these um, a lot of these scores really do play on on your emotions from a spiritual level? Um one of the things that I did get a lot from is people described the John Williams theme and to some degree, the Hans Zimmer theme um, as uh, something that evokes hope, uh, something that evokes, uh, you know, uh, an experience of, of, of light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, you know, to that degree, I, I think it is kind of a very spiritual thing um, that music, uh, you know, adds to, to movies besides the visuals. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, I, I think that probably is, is where most people will formulate their opinions. Uh, you, you spoke in nostalgia kind of early on when you're introducing the topic. I think nostalgia is probably one of the, the biggest factors as to what themes resonate with us the most, because I, for me, for me, movies have made the biggest impression on me. Um, what, like early on in my childhood, those, those are the movies that really kind of formed my opinion on movies, even into my adulthood. And so, um, you know, to, um, to kind of think about how I, I, uh, approach movie scores or themes from specific movies and characters that they represent. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's undeniable that, that my, very impressionable mind when I was younger is what has kind of kept me or, or, or guided me to where I'm at today and kind of my, my opinions on those things. Um, but, but to, to go back to that question that you brought up, the one that I I had posed to our, our little chat group, bro. Um, the reason why I asked that is because, and, and people, people have called me out on this. Uh, and, and I think it's fair because my opinion say when it comes to star Wars, for me, there is there is only there is only one hmm. one standard for Star Wars, and that is John Williams. And anything that really deviates from that too much, I, it doesn't feel like Star Wars. And so, I think some some composers after John Williams that have done work on kind of the animated Star Wars series, or um, I believe Michael Giacchino even did Rogue One. I think he did Rogue One. Yeah, I believe yes. he did. Yeah. Um, which I liked. I liked his his take on that. It had a lot of the Star Wars elements. It wasn't just a, a copy and paste of what John Williams did, you know, in the original trilogy. But he he put his own twist on it. But it still had a lot of those recognizable notes that we would all recognize from John Williams' Star Wars, right? But if if someone were to go out and just completely compose a brand new score for a Star Wars movie that is nothing, you know, that that doesn't take elements or or bits from what John Williams has already created. For me, I feel like that that's a disservice to the star Wars franchise. And I wouldn't like that. And so people call me out and say, well, why don't you feel that way about Superman that John Williams, you know, uh-huh. he, he created the standard for Superman. Right. For me though, for me, superheroes first and foremost exist within the comic book medium. Star Wars is first and foremost within movies. That is its medium. That's where it, it, it was birthed. That is where it has continued. And yes, Star Wars has expanded to other sources like comics, but it, it's, it, its standard will always be the original trilogy. That is Star Wars standard. 
for comic books, I feel like there's a lot more there's a lot more flexibility and leeway because because of its origins, right? I mean, do you think of you think about how the character of Superman has evolved from its inception? Superman didn't fly when he was first introduced in comics. He jumped over tall buildings. That was one of his superpowers. Flying was something that was introduced later on in the comic books. So, so that kind of flexibility that you have with the character, I feel like you can have when representing him in movies and specifically with themes that you give him. And so, so for me, the John Williams theme will always, it will always represent Christopher Reeves to me. That's, that is who I think of when I hear that score. I don't necessarily think of Superman. I think of Christopher Reeves, Superman. So, Hmm. so, you know, when eventually there is a new Superman movie, um, unfortunately, I would love to see Henry Cavill continue as Superman. Um, but I imagine. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I imagine that the composer that is, you know, hired to compose the score for that movie might even do his own take. I think I think it's it's likely that they'll probably use John Williams theme because that's what they I mean, I think that's what they did at the end of Black Adam when they showed that little uh, cameo of Henry Cavill. But and I didn't watch wonderful. that movie. That's what I just heard. <laughs> You see, for me, but anyway, yeah, yeah, go ahead. See, for me, for someone who actually absolutely hates the character of Superman, but loves the Christopher Reeves, it's really the only Superman that that I enjoy. And because yeah. of John Williams, and it's become so synonymous with each other. When I did see Black, because I didn't like this emo, depressed Superman that uh, Zack Snyder gave us, so. To that point, I can't imagine John Williams's Superman music being used for that. So you're right, because all these comic books have had so many different renditions and parallel universes in this. You can definitely play around with the music more. However, when I did see Black Adam, as much as I didn't like Zack Snyder's Superman, when I saw Henry Cavill come out in the more traditional Superman outfit... And you hear that little bit of John Williams's music in that post-credit scene. I smiled. I was happy. I saw more emotion finally in Henry Cavill's eyes than I have ever seen. <laughs> and I was like, this is Superman. And it even got me excited to see, okay, now they're going to go hopefully the more traditional way of superman the one that actually gives you hope not makes me want to go to therapy so <laughs> you know so there's something to be said about that and well let, let me ask you this shanti because since you're yeah. such a big batman fan i think i think your your opinion will weigh heavily on this um so well <laughs> so well it, it i often see a lot of outcry on online with um you know the use or, or the lack of use of of john williams superman theme for modern versions of Superman. Mm-hmm. However, I don't, I, I, it's rare that I see anyone bring up the Danny Elfman Batman theme and complain that it's not continued in these other versions of Batman. It wasn't continued with Nolan. It wasn't, uh, and uh, Christian Bale wasn't continued with Ben Affleck and it was not continued with Robert Pattinson's Batman. And, and, and I guess even on the flip side, I would say I mostly saw praise for the new Batman score from um, uh, the Robert Pattinson Batman movie. And and I wonder why that is. I wonder why people get so um, caught up in, uh, you know, saying, oh, John Williams theme is the only theme for Superman. But when it comes to Batman's theme, it's rare that I see people say, well, Danny Eflin's theme is, should be the only one for Batman. Why okay. do you think that is? I, I, the reason why is I think Danny Elfman and the way that he composes is there is such a, an oddness and a weirdness to his music. And even though as much as I love his Batman theme, you still, I still feel like you're getting remnants of Beetlejuice in there and (laughs) Edward Scissorhands. And I feel, Feel like his really can only connect to the Batman that were given through Tim Burton and Michael Keaton. You know what I mean? Because oddly enough, as much as I don't like the Schumacher movies, I actually kind of like the Batman theme that's used in that movie. And that's not Danny Elfman. That was a completely different composer. 
And believe it or not, I can actually hum that theme. I know it well. So I know both of those themes very well. I don't know the Ben Affleck one because I hate Ben Affleck. So we're not even going to go there. Um, But I think that's what it is. As to where John Williams, it's more, his music is so much more magical. He's using this, you know, what is it, the London Symphony or whoever it is that he, you know, composes with. And then Danny Elfman, he just has almost too particular of a sound. And it's just, it's just strange. And I don't think people sometimes can connect to that wacky Tim Burton world. I don't think it's well, yeah, accessible. I'm curious. That, that's interesting. I, I did have a theory and I think, um, I think Shanti touched on it a little bit because I think the, um, the Danny Elfman Batman uh, movies uh, were a little quirky and I think, um, and the music is definitely, um, you know, Danny Elfman is, is a very talented uh, individual, but you're right. It, it does have a certain uh, quirk to it where, um, I don't know, the, the, the Superman movies from uh, Christopher Reeve are probably, I want to say, I don't want to say that they're a class um, by themselves, but there is a certain level of um i don't know of of seriousness or or there's a certain gravitas to the john mm-hmm. williams themes that that right. lends itself to the character that is not so much with with batman in in that regards and i think that's probably why we see a lot of, a, a lot more praise for the newer batmans cuz obviously batman is not supposed to be a character who's happy go lucky and he's he is you know he's he's happy to be batman you know he's batman because of a tragic thing that happened in his life mm-hmm. um and uh, you know superman superman and batman in that respect cannot be compared like that um and i think the music kind of goes along with that too um so it's it's interesting and i wanted to go back real fast uh, to make a comment regarding Andre's uh, criteria for um, for the music that he, I, I guess, in his mind, selects to be the one all and all music of of superheroes, it's it's interesting that uh, that you say that uh, you know because it's a comic book movie and the source was comic books versus you know something like a Star Wars where it it was born in the cinema. Um, I find that interesting. Um, I might have to ponder and and uh, and and think about that uh, reasoning. <laughs> Can um, I give you a good example just of how I think there's some sort of a public opinion between the difference between John Williams and and Danny Elfman? Ro, I don't know if you've ever seen it since you hate your sci-fi mixed with comedy, <laughs> but <laughs> when when Seth MacFarlane did Blue Harvest, Family Guy and recreated a new hope with the family guy characters there is literally a whole section where the character of chris griffin says oh ladies and gentlemen you know john williams and they cut to john williams you know playing the music live there on tatooine but then the, he gets burned up like aunt beru <laughs> and uncle owen <laughs> oh, and then later they cut to Danny Elfman doing the score for Star Wars and one of them comes up with a lightsaber and just completely decapitates Danny Elfman. So (laughs) when you hear the music that's being played to represent Danny Elfman, you're like, yeah, it's it's almost too cartoonish, you know, so that's why his music can't continue to, you know, live on like that. That's why I think Batman's been able to been done because as epic as the music is, it's actually still maybe a little too uppity and light as to where the Robert Pattinson one, that one, you felt the darkness, you know, I don't feel the darkness with Danny Elfman. I just feel the epic nature of it. That's about it. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. And, you know, getting back to, I I was not a big fan of, uh, of the music in rogue one. When I first saw it in the movie theater, it, it kind of grew on me listening to the soundtrack, I think on, on Spotify or Pandora when it was released, um, it took me a while to uh, to really get into the themes and kind of listen to to what uh, what he was doing with that. But, you know, I got to tell you, you know, getting back to other composers that do Star Wars um, and Andre, I, I, I I'm pretty sure you don't watch the uh, the animated uh, Clone Wars. But Kevin Kiner is probably 
the next best in line to do a Star Wars film because some of his orchestrations are are near perfection when it comes to the feeling that John Williams has instilled in in a Star Wars score. Um, uh, Kevin Kiner is uh, is uh, I think he does the music composing with his son or his brother, but because because it's Kiner Brothers music. And it's, it's just, uh, it's phenomenal. There's one episode that I remember watching with my son and, um, they were on an adventure and the music was soaring. And, and I, I was just like, I was like besides myself as at how, how wonderful the music score was in that animation. I'm like, this is like movie quality. It was really great. So it's interesting to, to hear everyone's take, especially, uh, because obviously I'm very close to, to the star Wars franchise, uh, but, um, you know, to be able to, you know, capture John Williams magic, uh, happens once in a lifetime. Um, so I'm, um, you know, when we do get a new star Wars, eventually, uh, I would, you know, that's one of the things that I would really be interested in, in, and really seeing how it makes me feel. Is it going to make me feel like, uh, like a seven-year-old kid again, experiencing the, the, um, the nature of what those, uh, you know, that, that piece of music gave me when I was watching a star Wars for the first time, it'll be interesting to find out. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it does, but, uh, you got to stay healthy to make sure that, uh, we're alive during, uh, any more releases <laughs> of star Wars. Cause I don't well, see damn, anything on bleak. the horizon. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Stay healthy. Stay healthy. My friends live. Yeah, damn it. Live. That's the unfortunate reality of uh, the state of Lucasfilm right now when it comes to Star Wars movies. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. But, uh, guys, this has been a wonderful, wonderful Quick Cuts episode. I know uh, it's a couple of weeks in the making, but any final thoughts on this uh, little discussion here on superhero themes? This was great. Yeah, I'll say, I'll say this. Um, I, I, I genuinely do believe that that Hans or that uh, John Williams is is the the greatest film composer that Hollywood has ever seen. I think his his themes are are so ingrained into the history of cinema itself that there there really isn't anyone that I think could ever even um, overtake him in terms of just that kind of that number one status. Um, However, I think Hans Zimmer, Hans Zimmer is, is making the case for kind of the next great one. Um, and anyone, anyone who, who maybe doubts uh, the, the incredible quality of the Man of Steel um, score from Hans Zimmer, just go watch the flight scene, the first flight scene. So it's the moment that, that Superman puts on a suit. He doesn't know how to fly, but he's trying to fly. That that five minute sequence in Man of Steel, if that doesn't convert you, um, you and I are going to have to have a little discussion. But that that <laughs> scene alone, I think, is it, it, it's one of the greatest Superman scenes ever put to a movie. So, um, but Ro, this has been fun. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, Shanti. Any final words? It was great meeting you, Andre. This was a great topic. You can ask where I was very excited about this. Yeah, I just, she was. I, was, I <laughs> love music and movies and this in particular, talking about Batman and stuff and John Williams. Yeah, no. Um, I have to mimic everything that Andre said. I mean, I, I agree. Hans Zimmer is definitely on his way. I mean, I would probably say that the second most amount of soundtrack music that I have is Hans Zimmer, but John Williams, he's going to be a tough one to beat. I literally have a whole playlist that is just John Williams. <laughs> and I don't know if that's ever going to happen. If it does, like Rosa to get bleak, I hope I'm alive to see it. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Oh man. I hope can we like can we put him in carbonite or something because I know. let me tell you he's getting up there and god bless yeah. I'm glad he's lived a long life but I'm going to cry well, buckets well, buckets what is he 91 is he 91 he's 90 now? I think 91 yeah, I'm I cry think I when John Williams passes Absolutely like, oh, last oh, year yeah. I last year I did an episode with uh, Alex of the Salty Nerd fame and we were talking about dinosaurs and I said I just, I started to say, oh, John Williams is 90 years old. And Alex goes, oh no, 
I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, no, no, he's he's still around, but uh, yeah, it's and it's, Indiana uh, Jones is his last, him. right? This Indiana Jones is his last. I think so. Yeah, that's what he. Oh my god, yeah. I really have to see this in the theater. <laughs> yeah, enjoy but, him while he's here. I know. Absolutely. Yeah. Enjoy the music. And uh, Andre, again, thank you so much for you, joining uh, Shanti and I here on this uh, wonderful episode. You know, we love talking about movies and we love talking with people that love movies. So, Andre, this uh, really has been a very special Scare Scuttlebutt podcast episode. Thank you so much, Andre. Thank you, guys. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the Scare of Scuttlebutt podcast. Just wanted to remind you all, we can be found wherever you find your other favorite shows. iTunes, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Podchaser, Backtracks FM, Podtail, Owltail, Google Podcast, and of course, our own Red5Network.com to name a few. And don't forget to drop us a voicemail at 773-234-8659, our Scuttlebutt hotline. We want to hear what's on your mind. Your call is very important to us. Let us know what you think of the show, what future topics we should tackle, or just to say, hello there. Please hold. 